Today, as we continue some of Christ's school of prayer as he's teaching us what it is to pray, we're going to pick up the second half of larger half of this passage that we began last time uh, today, picking up in Luke chapter 11, verse 5, and we will read through verse 13 just to get the context. Jesus has been praying in a certain place, and his disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray also. And so we saw last week that Christ taught his disciples uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer, maybe better termed the Disciples' Prayer, given to us to pray as disciples. But we'll find today uh, that Jesus has more to say about uh, not just what we are to pray, but how we are to pray. And so we'll be reading together today Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. And before we read that together, please join me in prayer as we seek God's blessing upon the reading and study of his word. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you that you stoop down to speak to us. Thank you that you have compassion upon us as a father has compassion on his children. You remember our frame. And so, as some of our forebears have said, you lisp to us as a parent to a child. Speaking in ways that we can hear, you give us your word and you put it into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And so, oh Lord, we pray that you would give your Holy Spirit that we would hear and understand, that we would rejoice in the one who is our Savior and the fact that we can come to you, that through Christ's blood we all have access by one Spirit to the Father. Grant us that access today and, and have access to our hearts as well. We pray that you would lay us bare by your word, show us how much we need of you, and fill us to overflowing by your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. And he, that is Jesus, he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if he... If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. In, uh, In 2007... Police outside Reykjavik, Iceland, arrested and subsequently questioned a high school student over what was an apparent international breach of security. The student's name was Vifil Atelson, and the breach occurred when Vifil somehow managed to get his hands on a secret phone number for the Oval Office. Uh, Vifil then proceeded to call that phone number, uh, posing as himself the president of Iceland, and to request a private conversation with President George W. Bush. 
Well, as the story is reported, uh, the staff on the other end of the line, uh, they began to hand him off from person to person, what it seems uh, was passing him through a series of checkpoints and asking him questions to verify that he was indeed Olaf Ragnar Grimson, the president of Iceland at the time. Uh, of course, Viffel said uh, he was on the phone and sitting in front of Wikipedia, so he had no problem uh, answering the questions of when he was born and who his parents were and what year he was elected to office, and he was passed from one checkpoint to another until uh, they say eventually he found his way to the person who was the personal secretary for President Bush. She informed him that actually Mr. Bush is busy right now, uh, but could he call you back maybe Monday evening and set up a time to have a conversation? Well, instead of a conversation with President Bush, Viffel was treated to a three-hour interrogation at his local police department. No charges were filed. Uh, they wrote it off as, as somewhat of a prank. Uh, and I'm sure that we could find several ways to apply that to our own prayer lives. We could think about the way that the president has a phone number and you don't know it. Uh, we could think about uh, the fact that in order to get past these checkpoints and to have access, this young man actually had to pretend to be somebody important himself. You could think of other ways to, to apply this to your own prayer lives. But to me, I think what was, what was most intriguing was the conversation that Viffel hoped to have if he actually got through. He told a reporter that if he got connected to President Bush, he said, I just want to talk to him. I just want to have a chat. I just want to invite him to Iceland to see what he would say. <laughs> That's all. Just a chat. You have the phone number, potential access to a sitting U.S. president, one of the most important people in the entire world, and you just want to shoot the breeze. The translation there is that he didn't actually have any business with the president. There was no policy that he wanted to talk about. There was no global cause that was burning in his heart. To him, it was all just an experiment to see if he could get through to the other side. It was all just a big joke. It was a prank, in a sense. You notice maybe that what most impressed Jesus' disciples about his prayer life was the way that Jesus seemed to pray like he had business to do. It wasn't an experiment that he was just playing at. I don't know if you've noticed, but Luke has showed us over and over and over again that Jesus seems always to be praying. So far in Luke's gospel, prayer has served as a landmark for almost every single major event in Jesus' life and in his ministry. It began with Jesus praying at his baptism. He prayed at the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. He prayed all night before he chose his 12 disciples. And it seems as, as the crowds would gather, Jesus would often, we are told, withdraw to desolate places to be alone and to pray. Luke loves to show us Jesus at prayer. And he loves to show us Jesus praying as though he actually has something to say. Jesus praying as though he actually believes that there's somebody powerful and important and willing to help who's listening on the other end. No wonder when uh, his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus didn't stop by giving the pattern of prayer that we saw last week. We might say it's not enough uh, to know the words that you want to speak in prayer. It, it also, uh, prayer has something to do with believing that there is a powerful God who is listening and who is willing and ready to answer. In fact, that's one of the keys to vibrant prayer. It's not just about knowing how to shape your petitions, but it's about how faith in the Father shapes your praying heart. So today we're going to examine this 
second lesson that Jesus has for his disciples on how to pray. In these verses, the the key understanding here is about God's willingness to hear and to answer his people. This passage is about learning that God can be trusted with the prayers of his children. But if you actually believe that, as it seems Jesus believed that, what difference would that make about your prayer life? So we're going to answer the question, I hope, today. We're going to at least consider the question. If you actually believe that God could be trusted with your prayers, what would that do to the way you pray? How would that shape your heart as you approach the Lord? I think there are three things that that a faith like this, a belief that God can be trusted with our prayers, three things that that will do to our prayer lives. I think it will fill our prayers, one, with boldness, two, with confidence, and thirdly, with contentment. Believing that God can be trusted with our prayers will fill our prayers with boldness and confidence and contentment. So first, if you believe that God can be trusted, then you can pray with a boldness about your needs. That's the point of the first parable that Jesus tells in in verses 5 through 8. The situation seems to be clear enough, but it really hinges on this emphasis on hospitality that seems almost foreign in our culture. I suppose if we were a church in the Deep South, we might begin to get a sense for the importance of hospitality. At least in Alabama, they still have the concept of Southern hospitality. We don't have any of that. We have only Northern aggression. Uh, Here in New England, uh, it's, it's just what we do. It's how we show affection. Our love language is bluntness. Our cardinal virtue is not having to be bothered by somebody else's needs. But that's not the way it was in Jesus' day. In the towns where Jesus lived, that wasn't the case. The commentators like to remind us that in Judaism, hospitality was a sacred duty. It wasn't just a good idea. It wasn't something that you ought to do. It was something that God required of you. And in fact, we saw recently, uh, looking at Mary and Martha, that that's still the case, by the way. God still requires us to show hospitality without grumbling. He expects especially the officers in a church, an elder and a deacon, to be hospitable. That's part of their godly character. But it was something in Jews, in the day of Judaism, uh, in which Jesus was living, it was something of a sacred duty. It's how the Jews showed their covenant love. They opened their homes to travelers and to friends. And it didn't matter, really, if they were announced or unannounced. It didn't matter if you could look at your calendar and say, my mother-in-law is coming on this weekend, or if she just showed up. Uh, You had to show hospitality, even if she wasn't your mother-in-law. And it was simply a traveler uh, coming through. And so that means that in the story that Jesus was telling, this first friend that he has in mind has a genuine need that he cannot meet by himself. Notice the details. A a traveler has shown up, another friend. Maybe this second friend is is passing through this village and on his way to Jerusalem. Maybe he's there to stay for business for a while, but he's shown up. And, And in order to escape the heat of the day, as people often did in that culture, he would begin his journey maybe late in the afternoon, almost at twilight, and he would, he would walk through sunset and on into the night, and by the time he gets to his friend's village where he knows there's a place he can stay, uh, the gates have long since shut, the doors have long since been barred, the children have long since gone to bed, and yet he's there, and a guest is a guest, and so it doesn't matter what time. He shows up. You're supposed to show hospitality, and the very first rule of hospitality is your guest needs something to eat. And so here is this man, 
And when Jesus says that the host has nothing to set before him, the jaws of every person listening would have dropped to the floor. This is a catastrophe, hospitality, uh, in, in, in terms of hospitality. It's a catastrophe. This man is in danger of insulting his guest if he can't put anything before him. He is in, in danger, really, of, of bringing shame upon himself, in danger of, of bringing shame upon the entire village. There is, uh, you know, a, a pretty prominent uh, story in the Old Testament about a village that was not very hospitable to visitors. There were other sins mixed in there, but you remember. And, and so there is this great emphasis for the whole town, the whole village. When somebody comes in, it's a gracious thing to show hospitality. And if this man can't provide for his host, it's bad for him and it's bad for everybody else. And so Jesus poses the question, what can be done about this need? He says, which one of you would, would go to your neighbor and ask him to lend you three loaves and get an answer like that? Don't bother me. <laughs> the door's shut. My children are asleep. I can't get up and give you anything. Now, actually, it's not much of an ask. Uh, when we think three loaves, don't think of those big, rustic French loaves that, that look so good and make your mouth water. We're talking like biscuits here, like, like individual, personal-sized pita bread, something that they could use to sop up whatever they were going to eat. It was just a little bit. And Jesus says, which one of you would go in the middle of the night and ask a small thing and have someone find four different ways to tell you no? Don't bother me. The door's closed. My kids are asleep. I can't help you. Go away in no uncertain terms. Who would answer the question like that? Can you imagine getting that response if you had a genuine need? It's important to, to understand how Jesus is asking this question. The ESV is, is helpful because the question begins in verse 5 and the question mark doesn't show up until the end of verse 7. Jesus is not saying, which one of you would ask like this? Jesus is saying, can you believe that anybody would answer like that? Is it even possible that a friend would, would make such lame excuses not to give you what you need? And the answer to Jesus' question, which one of you has a friend like that? The answer is nobody has a friend like that. That's not what friendship is. A small thing, it may be an inconvenient time. What a lame excuse. I, I can't help you. I, actually, the translation should be, I don't want to help you. It's too much of a hassle for me. So the answer is no one. There's no friend worth the name who would refuse a genuine need. In fact, it doesn't even matter if your neighbor didn't like you very much. It doesn't matter if sometimes your, your dog dug up her, his flowers and, and he was just tired of you. It doesn't matter if you were not on very good speaking terms. Jesus is saying uh, that if you have a genuine need, that tends to move people's hearts. Take a look in verse 8. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I'm not going to ask you the last time you were, used the word impudence in casual conversation. It's not one that we use very often, but actually it's, it's the key to understanding this parable. Now that means uh, it's a bit trickier because the word here, the Greek word behind what the ESV has for impudence, is a word that shows up only here in the New Testament. And so there's a debate between scholars about what it might mean, and they look at all these other examples outside of the Bible. We have no other context clues to tell us what's going on, and so there's this debate, and the debate goes like this. Some people look at this word translated impudence here, uh, and they say, well, this actually means persistence, right? In fact, that's what our ESV has in our footnotes. That's what the New American Standard has, uh, that because of his persistence, 
he will rise and give him what he needs. The King James, if you've got that open, says importunity. That's an older way of saying persistence. And it, and it may fit well uh, with, uh, with the next portion where uh, the, the uh, commands actually could be translated with a continuous action. That in verse 9, it could be that Jesus is saying, I tell you, go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking, don't stop, but keep persisting in prayer. And when you hear this parable retold, people will typically say, well, and, you know, and, and here's this guy, and he, he wouldn't take no for an answer, and he needed these roles, and he kept hounding him, but that's not actually in the text. Persistence in prayer is a biblical idea, but it's not the idea here. It will be the idea in Luke chapter 18 with that other parable uh, about the woman who takes her need to the unjust judge and continues to ask and continues to ask. But actually the word impudence is pretty good here because the Greek word means shamelessness. It actually is a little word. The, the root of the word means shame, and there's a, there's a negative applied to the beginning, so it means without shame, somebody who, who has no shame in their own actions. If we were English, we would say that this first guy is pretty cheeky, uh, that he's willing to do what other people normally wouldn't do in this social circumstance. He's willing to go at an hour that he knows very well is not a convenient time. He knows that the kids are sleeping. He knows that the door is barred, but it's his need that drives him to be maybe more rude than you would normally be because he has to have this need met. He's asking because what he needs is not something he can get for himself, and so he is shameless, he is bold, he is impudent. And Jesus is saying that this kind of shameless boldness even tends to move the hearts of the coldest men. I'm sure that you've had the situation of walking down the street and someone stops you and they're asking for change, asking for whatever you can spare. You've got a sign, they've got a cup, they've got whatever. Uh, and I bet you have at least on one occasion walked by and said, you know what, not today. Uh, I'm just not, not today. What if that need was, was presented in a different way? One that you couldn't so easily ignore. One that connected with a, a, a real human piece of this person who's there asking for something. Let's, let's say, let's just imagine that you're not just walking down the street, but you're about to go into the drugstore. You're about to pick up a few things, and there is that same uh, person in tattered clothes with the dirty hair, and he doesn't have a sign, but he stops you, and he says, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't even know how to say this. This is really embarrassing. I would really love to have a toothbrush. That's it. Like, I just, I've been out here for a long time. I've been, I've been sleeping on the streets for a long time, and, it, and it's so long since I've felt just a little bit human, just, just the sense that even my breath isn't offensive to everybody around me. It, it's, it's silly, but, but would you mind buying me a toothbrush while you're in there? You don't have to know that person. You don't have to be friends that person, but is there a single person in this room that would not come out of that CVS with a whole bag full of toothbrushes and floss and five different kinds of toothpaste and say, here's what you need. Let me give it to you. That's what Jesus says, actually. Verse 8, he says, though he will not get up and give him anything, notice the anything, though he will not give up, get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. 
You see, when we're bold with our needs, even from one to another, even from human to human, there's something that connects in us that we see that and we know how to get what we actually need when we need it. Jesus is telling us that, that this kind of boldness sometimes melts the hearts of even the coldest people. And there are some needs that are so great that they actually force us to overcome the awkwardness of asking other people for what we need. Now here's the application. Jesus is not saying that God is like that reluctant neighbor. Okay? Jesus is not saying that you need to keep knocking and keep knocking and keep knocking because God doesn't move unless you are persistent unless you keep asking over and over and over again. He's not saying that God is like that hesitant neighbor, but he is saying that if we know how to be bold enough to get what we need from people around us, shouldn't we come with the same kind of shameless expectation that God will give what he's already promised? You see, if you believe, if you realize that God can be trusted, that when you pray, he actually hears you, that when you ask, he's willing to give that will put a certain boldness into your prayer. I think what the Lord wants from us in our prayer is the boldness that says, Lord, I realize that I have real needs. This is our third point last week, and it, and it flows directly into what we're seeing now at the beginning, that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus encourages us to be honest with our needs. Now he's encouraging us to be bold with our needs. What has the Lord told us that we, we need from him? He wants the boldness that comes and says, I have real needs and, and I recognize that there is no other source of supply than you, O Lord. I've come to realize that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. I've come to realize that you own the bread in a thousand bakeries. You are the one who grants forgiveness and freedom from sin and Christ. I've come to believe that I cannot get what you will not give and I have no other option and I need your help. Folks, when you pray like that to your heavenly Father, how is he going to answer you? You know, I've got my hands full with this whole coronavirus thing. I'm just exhausted. I'm exhausted from keeping peace between Russia and the Ukraine and all these other things, and there's this little election coming up, and I'm just, I'm busy with so many other things, and if you had only come earlier in the day, I'm sorry, I can't help you now. I wish I could. My hands are tied. I can't. Is that how the Lord is going to answer? When we come boldly and we say, Lord, this is what you have taught me to ask of you. And I'm coming because I realize that what I don't have, you can give. And I have no other option. And so, oh Lord, please forgive my sins. Lead me not into temptation. Give me my daily bread. Make me a part of raising up your name and your kingdom in the world. Oh Lord, would you do that? Is that how he's going to answer? Sorry, I don't have time. I'm exhausted right now. Uh, Psalm 121 tells us that he who keeps you will not slumber. Isaiah chapter 30 tells us the Lord waits to be gracious to you. The Lord exalts to show mercy to you. God is not going to refuse the bold requests of his needy children. He is not too busy. He is not too hard-hearted. He is not going to slam the door in your face when you come with your prayers. And that means that we can come with a boldness about our needs. We can come without feeling shame for those things that he has taught us to recognize that only he can give. So here's our first point. It's an encouragement to you in your prayer. 
When you begin to believe that God actually can be trusted with your prayers, it will create a boldness in you to come and to lay it out, to shamelessly say, oh Lord, this is what I need, and I need it from you because I can get it in no other way. And so there's a boldness that we find here. Now that boldness is inseparable from the second point that we learn in these verses. We can also pray with a confidence in what God has promised. We can pray with a boldness about our needs, and we can pray with a confidence in God's promises. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. Now here Jesus is applying this parable to our prayer lives. Ask, he says, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. I wonder if you've considered that perhaps this is one of the greatest promises that Jesus ever makes anywhere in the scriptures. We just saw in our previous section that in in this parable at first, this this reluctant neighbor finds four separate ways to say no. Here, Jesus is giving six separate ways that God says yes. Because he repeats himself, doesn't he? He's just said the same thing. We're not learning much new information at all in verse 10. There's a little bit that he adds to it, but it's the same thing all over again. Ask and seek and knock and ask and seek and knock because when you do six times, God will answer. This is what he's telling us. Six different ways to make us know that God will say yes. Think about all the other promises that you find in God's word. The Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you could add to that list. What has God promised to you in Christ Jesus? He's promised care and and protection. He's promised life in Christ. He's promised forgiveness of sins. He's he's promised inheritance together with all the saints. He's promised to sanctify you, to cause you to persevere through through every affliction that would threaten to, to shipwreck your faith. He's promised to make you more like Jesus. He's promised to take His holiness and to work it into you, into your mortal bodies, to produce fruits in keeping with repentance while you wait for that day that sin will be nothing but a memory. All of these promises that we have in Scripture, all of these promises that are yes and amen in Jesus, and yet without a promise like the one that we find in Luke chapter, chapter 11, verse 10, we might be tempted to stand at a distance and say, well, maybe that's for somebody else. Maybe it's not for me. Maybe, maybe I'm the exception to the clause here. Maybe I'm the one who's on the outside. I wonder if it has anything to do with me. Maybe there's a God who's willing to hear and to answer prayer, but not for me. Maybe I'm all alone in a world of heartache, and maybe I'm outside the reach of God's goodness. And that's why in verse 10, Jesus repeats himself, and he adds that all-important word. For everyone, everyone, everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. It's an invitation. It's a reminder that the the blessing, and we sometimes speak of the power of prayer, the blessing of prayer, the, the power of prayer doesn't depend on the piety of the person who's praying. Prayer doesn't work on a merits-based system where you have to go through this long, exhaustive list of spiritual prerequisites until your faith is strong enough to begin asking big things of God, like forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus doesn't meet us and say, no, I'm sorry, you must be this spiritually tall to ride this ride called prayer. That's not how prayer works. This is an open invitation. Confidence in prayer has nothing to do with who you are and everything to do with how God hears. How does God hear? He hears everyone who comes to him in faith. He gives grace to everyone who asks for it. He shows mercy to everyone who seeks it. He opens his promises to everyone who knocks. Folks, what greater encouragement to prayer could you find than this? I think very often we come to prayer and we come to, to learning to pray or to growing in prayer and we expect, to God, we expect God to give us more of the stick than he does the carrot. Right? We, we carry around these these piles of, of guilt and shame, because we already know that our prayer lives are not what they ought to be, even if you've been a believer for most of your life. We become sick of ourselves because we're always taking up the habit of prayer, and then after a while it, it fades, and we forget to have regular and, and constant communion. And so we come to passages like these, we come to sermons like these, and we wait for the pastor to stand there and to wag his long Presbyterian finger and to tell you, here's the danger of the sin of prayerlessness. And it's true. And maybe the sin of prayerlessness is something we ought to examine in our lives, but that's not the message in this text. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he doesn't teach about it in a way that's to make them fearful about prayer, but to draw them into prayer. It's an invitation. He isn't warning us against praying too little. He isn't warning us about using the wrong words. He isn't chastising us for the wrong motives. Jesus is not giving us a measurement of how strong our faith must be before we can apply verse 10 to our situation. He simply showcases God's goodness, and he says anyone and everyone who will come and ask will receive. He's trying to build up the confidence of his children in the God they're speaking to. Jesus is making prayer an invitation. He's making it an open opportunity to come and to receive from Christ what he has said he will give to us. John Calvin put it this way. He said, after we have been instructed by faith to recognize that whatever we need, whatever we lack is in God and in our Lord Jesus Christ, it remains for us to seek in him and in prayers to ask of him what we have learned to be in him. Did you catch that? Once we've, once we've been trained, once we've been taught by the gospel that there is a lack in us and there is an abundance in Christ, there remains something yet. It remains for us to come and to seek and to ask that God would apply to us all the riches that he has promised to give us, all those promises that he has said are yes and amen in Christ. And it's an invitation, isn't it? Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. To everyone who knocks, it will be opened. That's what prayer is about. It's about coming with the confidence that God will actually give, graciously give, all that he's promised in Christ. And that means, doesn't it, that we also have to be pretty careful with this promise. You know how it goes. You know there are people who like to twist this promise into something that it was never meant to be. It's easy to do if you just try. All you have to do is forget the context. 
All you have to do is forget the fact that Jesus has just told us what are the things we ought to be praying for. And he's told us, well, you, you pray for, for forgiveness. You pray that you too would be forgiving. You pray that God would lead you away from temptation. You pray for, for your daily necessities. You pray to be part of what God is doing in the world through his kingdom reign. You pray that his name would be hallowed in your life, that others would see it, would see the works that God is doing in you and rejoice in him. He's told us what we ought to pray, but that's okay. Let's just forget that context for a little bit. And they say, well, if you want a Maserati, you go and ask for it. If you want to be the CEO, you just go and start knocking. If you want to be saved from that sickness that you've got, you just go and you ask because hasn't Jesus told us that God must answer when we ask in faith? And you've heard it. And then if by chance those prayers go unanswered, it reveals that your confidence wasn't really in God at all anyway. Because what happens if you didn't get that Maserati, if you didn't get that extra job, if you didn't get the whatever, what's the problem? Is that you didn't pray well enough. You didn't grab your bootstraps and pull hard enough. You didn't do the spiritual exercises that you ought to be doing. You have to have better faith in your faith. You have to have more confidence in your confidence. And so go away and try a little bit more and come back and maybe God will give you what you deserve. And it's easy to do. Just forget the context. That's not what Jesus is telling us here. He's inviting us to have more confidence in the power of, he's not telling us to, excuse me, he's not telling us to have more confidence in the power of our prayers. He's telling us that we can believe in the God who answers the prayers of his children. That God can be trusted. 1 John chapter 5 tells us this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything, according to his will, he hears us. John says we can have a confidence if we ask things according to his will. And there's the $10 million question. Well, how do we know what's according to his will? He's just given you a pattern. He's just told you what God cares about. And now he says, come and ask these things and God will grant them. So as you pray the way that Christ taught you to pray, you can come to the throne of grace with boldness. Because you know that you have needs that God can supply. You come with confidence because he's given you this promise that he will answer in Christ Jesus. You come knowing that God can be trusted with the prayers of his people, and that raises the burning question in our minds. What about all those prayers that we've prayed that seem to have gone unanswered? I'm talking about the silly things, right? Not the, not the sports car and the lottery ticket. I'm talking about good things. Prayers for your sick kids to get better. Prayers for your unbelieving spouse to be converted. Prayers for this sickness to be done with already. Prayers for this chronic condition that you struggle with that nobody knows about. Or if they did know about it, they've forgotten about it already and they've left you behind because there's a new cause to be praying for. And here you are still suffering and you've been praying for that. And how long, O oh Lord? How long will you deal with this insufferable loneliness? What about the prayers that you offer for revival in pagan New England? What do we do then? What do we think about all of our boldness and, and all of our confidence that God seems to ignore when we pray good, God-honoring prayers? And that brings us to our final point. When you know that God can be trusted with your prayers, it will also produce a contentment in what he provides. Boldness with your needs. Confidence in his promises. 
contentment in his provision. There's another parable Jesus gives us in verse 11. Father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now we know how to read this question, don't we? It's the mirror image of the one that we've already heard. It works on the same kind of principle. In fact, the answer to this question is almost the same as the answer in the first parable. The first question was, who has a friend like this? And the answer is, nobody's got a friend like this. The second question is, which father would do something like this? The answer is, no father would do something like this. There are notable exceptions. It's the reality of sin in the world that there are some fathers who are terribly hurtful to their children, wickedly sinful and abusive. But in fact, actually, those exceptions prove the rule, don't they? Why is it that abusive and hateful fathers get our attention? Because we realize there's this sort of gut reaction, even in the wider culture, who wants to say fatherhood is nothing and motherhood is nothing and they're all interchangeable. There's this sort of gut reaction when we see those things happening, when we read them in the newspaper, that fathers are meant to provide and protect. They're supposed to give good gifts to their children. That's what fathers are there for. And so when it goes awry, we say that's not how it's supposed to go. And Jesus is saying, which, which father among you would do that? If a child comes to daddy and asks for a fish to feed his belly, no father worth the name is going to hand him a viper. That's not how fatherhood works. And even sin-filled humanity recognizes that. If you, who are evil, he says, he doesn't back away from that. He doesn't say, now you folks have got it together. You know fatherhood because you're fine, upstanding Israelites. No, no, no. If you who are evil know that that's not how fatherhood works. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We're going to come back to that line about the Holy Spirit. But notice the, the, uh, the logic in Jesus' statement. He's moving from the lesser to the greater. If in this world, generally, you can trust fallible fathers to give good gifts to their children, how much more than your God in heaven, who is perfect and unchangeably good, the Father of lights from whom come all good gifts, how much more can you trust the Lord to give you what you need? Now, one of the things that I have learned in nine years of fatherhood is that there are many loving ways that a father can answer a request from a child. Depending on the kid, depending on the circumstance, depending on the time of day, very often the right answer is yes, but sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. And despite what my kids might tell you, if you ask them later, I love to, to give good gifts to my children. I love to give them what they need. I love to provide for my family. I even like to give them things they want even though I am known as the curmudgeon, and if you really want something, you, you should go and ask mom. That, that's, that's the situation in our household, but I, I do love, because I'm a father, I've got a father's heart, I love to give good gifts to my children. But there are times that because I'm their father and because I love them, because I know what they need better than they do, the best thing I can tell them is no. Dad, can I have a snack? Well, normally, yes. But you see that your mother is making dinner right now, so no. Check back later. And I'm a father, so that's my prerogative. 
Now, in an early uh, strip from Calvin and Hobbes, here's where we're getting really theologically deep here. Uh, in an early strip from Calvin and Hobbes, six-year-old Calvin uh, says to his mother, Mom, can I set fire to my bed mattress? The answer comes back from the other room, no, Calvin. Can I ride my tricycle on the roof? No, Calvin. Well, then can I have a cookie? No, Calvin. And as he sulks away, he declares, she's on to me. <laughs> That's how it goes, though. I think this, this text here tells us which of you, if your child asked for a fish, would give him a serpent, but I think it's a legitimate application to say which of your children, if they asked for a serpent, you'd give them a serpent. Isn't it part of the discipline of childhood to learn that you can trust what your parents will provide? Isn't it about learning to be content with what they have determined is best for you at just the right moment? Now the reality is that many of the people in this room have prayed seemingly good prayers and have heard God's no. Maybe you've received God's not yet. And while you are waiting... And while you are longing for that affirmative answer, it can be tempting to think either God has not heard you or he doesn't care about you. And I think this parable is, is challenging us to consider whether no might sometimes be the best answer God can give to his children. And it's hard for some of the younger folks among us to understand that. But if you've been praying, if you've been following the Lord for several decades now, you know that your life is probably better and your faith is probably stronger because of the many prayers that God has said no to, right? I've been, I've been praying long enough that I know what a disaster my life probably would have been if every relationship I prayed about, if every job offer I had prayed about, if every little thing that I had asked God to do for me, if he had this automatic affirmative policy, anything you want, come and get it and I'll give you with no restrictions anything you ask for. Can you imagine what your life would be like if everything you ever asked for in prayer, God said, absolutely, here you go, it's yours. Well, maybe you think life would be great that way. <laughs> maybe you'd, you'd have life exactly as you wanted it. And maybe all your fears would be gone. Maybe all your diseases would be gone. Maybe all of your trials and your struggles would be gone. Maybe you wouldn't know the spouse who sits next to you right now who seems to sometimes be a thorn in your flesh but really is a sanctifying influence on you. Maybe life would be great, you say. But one thing's true, if God answered your prayers like that, your life would not be like Jesus' life. Your experience of prayer would not be like Jesus' prayer. Here's what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 5. That in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who pray with him, who all who obey him, rather. Jesus prayed with boldness. He prayed with heart. He prayed with confidence. And do you notice the progression? He prayed to him who was able, and he was heard, and then he suffered. Why? Because his righteous and loving father knew that that was what was best. And he learned obedience 
through what he suffered. He became the source of salvation to all who obey him. And he gives us the example, how can we pray? How should we call out to our Father? That's the question that began this whole thing, isn't it? The disciples came, and maybe you came, and you're saying to Jesus, Lord, teach me to pray. I want to pray like you pray. Well, if you're going to pray like Jesus prays, you better be prepared to have a little bit of contentment. Lord, if it's possible, yet not my will, but yours be done. It's possible that you can come to the Lord and you can ask for things that seem to be good, and God will say no. But what does he say? There is a prayer that he will not say no to. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, to those who ask. In this life, we may often go without some of the things that we wish we had. And some of those things may be big, important things. It may be a child who does not follow the Lord. It may be a difficulty and, and, a, and a pain that keeps us in bed most of our days. We may be without things that others have and we would love to have. The Lord is telling us that if you call out and ask for God to give you his gifts, there is a gift that you will never have to go without. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The one who grows us in faith, the one who makes us more like Christ, the one who teaches us to pray like he prayed with a boldness and a confidence and a contentment to say, Lord, whatever you will provide, I will trust in you. So what does it mean? What does it look like if you actually believe that God can be trusted with your prayers. Well, it looks like you pray with boldness, contentment, confidence. It looks like prayer full of the Holy Spirit. It looks like prayer like Jesus prayed. And my prayer is that you would be learning more and more what it is to pray like him, that he would be teaching you, that you would draw near to the Father and know that he can be trusted. Please join me as we pray. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We thank you that you have promised to pour out your Spirit into the hearts of all who are your children, to give us the gift of faith that we can even come to you with any boldness at all, to show us what it is that we lack, and that you supply all that we need. And so, O oh Lord, we pray that you would teach us. Teach us to walk with you. Teach us to pray to you. Teach us to pray like our Savior. I thank you that he intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray for ourselves. Oh, Lord, would you build us up? Would you invite us to yourself? Would you call us and draw us by your Holy Spirit to your throne of grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.